All right, it's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2. Now, in our last study in 1 John, we saw how John called out and condemned those in the church who claimed, you know, to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, to walk in the light, okay, but who hated other Christians. John called them out and condemned them as self-deceived, unsaved phonies. Don't you love it how John beat around the bush? Him and James hung out a lot, and they just called it like it was. But in verse 9, John said, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. After dealing with those counterfeit Christians, John then turned his attention to genuine believers in Christ by challenging them, all of us, to grow into mature adult members of the family of God. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. John tells us there are three stages of spiritual growth for believers in Christ. Little children, young men, and mature fathers. And John is really calling on all believers in Christ to go on to maturity and to understand. This is important. A lot of Christians don't seem to get this today. But to go on to maturity and to understand that we are in a war against the devil and his demons. And the only way to defeat the enemy is by knowing and using the word of God. Verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Guys, the word of God, also known as the sword of the spirit, is our weapon as believers that God has given to us to defeat the enemy. And uh, when we study God's word and put it into practice, well, it will cause us as believers to grow and overcome the devil. But listen to me, only if the word of God is put into practice in our lives. There's a lot of folks that believe that just by going to church and hearing the word, that's all they need. And James tells us very clearly in chapter 1, verse 22 of his epistle, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And there are a lot of folks that uh, come to church and they hear the word of God. Some of them know the Bible very well, but for whatever reason, they're not really applying what they know. But they think because I know it, because I, I hear it in church, that's all I need. And for a lot of folks, when they hit the door going out to the parking lot, well, they kind of leave everything in church that they've learned as if their lives should be compartmentalized uh, Sunday and then the rest of the week. And God never intended that. He intended Sunday we come together to get recharged, refreshed, uh, encouraged by one another, and then we go out into the world and fight the battle for another week. Uh, we sometimes drag him back into church on Sunday morning, uh, pretty beat up, but uh, we sit in God's presence and we sing his praises and we start feeling rejuvenated. Other believers come up to us and say, look, God laid you on my heart. I've been praying for you this week. Here's a scripture the Lord gave me to give to you. And you read it, and it's exactly what you needed to hear. And so you walk out with a little spring in your step, ready to fight the battle another week. But there are a lot of folks that, that don't do that. They don't grow up, okay? As we said last week, many in the body of Christ are growing old, but they're not growing up. 
And Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, classic passage on that very issue. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of your faith is the idea. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he or she, of course, is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, in other words, mature, that is, those who by, and here it is, reason of use have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. You grow when you apply God's word. There's something about, you need to hear it, obviously, you need to read it, but something wonderful happens when you seek to live it by God's grace. When you really want to take the truths of God's word and use them, when you go into the world every day, uh, where you begin to live really, apply what you've learned, that's when the Holy Spirit energizes the truth in your heart and something wonderful begins to happen. You begin to grow. You begin to feel his presence. There's a power that comes upon you when you're talking to people about the Lord. It's obvious to you and it has an effect on them. So God's at work, but only when we apply what we learn. Look, the goal of Christianity, guys, is to grow into strong men and women of God who know his word and can use it to defeat the wicked one. And so this becomes ground zero in our battle with the devil. This is what spiritual warfare really is all about, a battle for control of our heart. We said last time the quickest way for Satan to hinder or stop the growth that God wants us to have. Again, the goal of Christianity is that we grow up in the Lord. The quickest way for Satan to hinder or to stop that growth altogether is through worldliness. Worldliness. And again, this becomes ground zero for spiritual warfare. A battle for control of our heart. In other words, who or what are we going to love more? God or the world. You know, we could put Christianity into some very deep, profound theological terms. But Jesus said that sometimes the deepest truths of God are comprehended by children. And I think this is one of those times. I mean, you know, we could talk to great theologians who could give us all kinds of uh, biblical, doctrinal truth. But it, it all right, I wasn't planning on sharing this, uh, but I've shared it with you before, and I don't have all the details in front of me tonight, but uh, Robert Dick Wilson, one of the greatest minds the church has ever seen, a brilliant, brilliant man. It says over the course of his life he learned 45 languages. He memorized the entire Bible in Hebrew and could recite it without missing a syllable. He was a giant among giants. If someone would debate Dr. Wilson and say, yo, but the Syriac says this, he knew the Syriac. He could, you know. He was such a giant man uh, of intellect. Near the end of his life, he's teaching a class at a seminary. And uh, one of the students raised his hand and said, Dr. Wilson, of all the years you've been studying God's word, what is the greatest truth you've ever learned? Dr. Wilson took his glasses off with a tear running down his cheek. He said, the greatest truth I have ever learned is that Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. 
when you got that nailed down, what really more do you need to know? And then this is what John's saying. I'm sure John could have gotten very deep. The Holy Spirit was working through him writing this. It seems like the Holy Spirit wanted John just to express a very deep thought in a very simple way. The battle between the devil and you, the spirit inside of you, is for control of your heart. Who or what are you going to love the most? God or the world? Godly Christians defeat the enemy. Worldly Christians are defeated by the enemy. It's our choice. And so that's what John begins to warn the children of God to be on guard against. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. These three verses contain some of the most insightful and important truths. Simple, but some of the most important truths in the Bible for understanding how Satan tries to defeat a child of God. And that is simply by trying to get them to love the world. Worldliness. First of all, when John says that children of God must not love the world, he uses the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos is a word that doesn't mean the planet Earth. It means the fallen world system which is controlled by Satan. Of course, planet Earth was created by God, and it's beautiful, an awesome thing to behold. Not to be worshipped, of course. There are those that make the mistake, as Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 1, who don't worship the creator, but instead worship the creation. And that's just paganism. Paganism. Now, as believers, we look at God's creation, and it points us back to him. And that's what the creation was designed to do. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day the utter speech. Night unto night reveal knowledge. Everything in the creation was designed by God to speak a universal language that he is real, he exists. Of course, the creation, even though it's fallen, is still beautiful. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when God recreates everything that's never been tainted by sin. Uh, that's going to be uh, quite a creation. The new heavens, the new earth, and so on. But planet earth is beautiful and uh, should be enjoyed because God created it to be enjoyed and uh, to be used to worship the creator who made it out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew is bara, which means to bring into existence something out of nothing. Only God has that ability. We can be creative, quote-unquote, by assembling existing materials. Only God can speak into existence something out of nothing. So the planet Earth is beautiful. On the other hand, though, cosmos is a word that refers to the domain of Satan. That's why he's called the god of this cosmos, the god of this world. And uh, he has filled it with all kinds of temptations and lust. Therefore, the Bible says we must not, as the people of God, love this fallen world system. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. One pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, cosmos, world, 
does not refer to the physical earth or universe, but rather to the spiritual reality of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age, which is hostile to God and God's people. It refers to the self-centered, godless value system and mores of fallen mankind. The goal of the world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving all of which amounts to hostility toward God, end quote. That pretty much sums it up. As I said, verses 15 through 17 of 1 John 2 are some of the most insightful in the Bible for understanding spiritual warfare because, guys, they outline for us the areas of our fallen nature, listen, that Satan attempts to target with temptation to try to defeat us. So John is saying, be on guard. That's his whole point. He wants you to grow. He wants you to bear fruit. He wants you to be used by God to bring him glory. Satan wants to oppose all of that. So John is saying, look, I'm challenging you to grow up and to grow strong and to be victorious through the word of God. The devil doesn't want any of that. And here's what he's going to do to hinder your growth or to shut it down altogether. He's going to try to use this world system, which he is in complete control of, to target certain areas of your fallen nature in an attempt to bring you under his control to neutralize your walk and your effectiveness for God. That's spiritual warfare at its core. So be on guard. Again, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things uh, in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. For all that is in the world... Now listen, here's the three areas that he targets in our fallen nature. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world system. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now guys, when John said that there are three areas that Satan will target in our lives with temptation to bring us down. I believe he had in mind the very first temptation of Satan recorded in the book of Genesis. If you've been coming for a while, you know you've heard me talk about the law of first mention. What is that? It's a law of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. And in hermeneutics, there's something called the law of first mention. What is that? Whenever a major concept is mentioned first in the Bible, like marriage, or like um, atonement, or, or worship. Study that passage. It, it often becomes a prototype for understanding that concept or that doctrine throughout the rest of the pages of Scripture. The first place the devil ever tempted a human being on the face of the earth was in Genesis chapter 3. Why don't you turn there? Since this was the first time the devil tempted anyone, and her name was Eve. The law of first mention tells us that we ought to study it carefully because we can learn an awful lot about how the devil then will tempt all of us from this passage. I'm going to read you the first seven verses. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat 
the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And by the way, that last little statement was the beginning of religion. Man's efforts to the works of his hands to cover his shame before God. And God did not allow that. Uh, he killed a couple of animals and used animal skins to cover the shame of their nakedness. Why? Because animal skins cover better than fig leaves? No. To establish a principle right up front that through the works of our heads we will never, religion will never atone for our sins, cover our shame. It has to be through a blood sacrifice. The innocent dying for the guilty, it would set the stage even up front here to the whole idea of uh, the atonement, but um, where another was punished in our place, okay? Um, and so you understand that's the basis for the gospel. But notice how Satan's temptation of Eve in the garden coincides with the temptations that John tells us Satan will use against all of us. It says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Satan even used this attack on the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Now, you don't have to turn there. You can read about it later on through in Matthew 4. Remember that Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he was where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then the devil appeared to him and tried to use three different temptations to get him to uh, disobey his father and to submit to his own fleshly uh, desires bodily desires and not fallen nature stuff but his physical hunger and things okay and uh, remember how that uh, at one point, because he's hungry, he hasn't eaten for 40 days and nights, the devil says, see these stones, why don't you command them to become bread and eat? And from what I understand, the stones in this area looked like those flat round loaves of bread. And uh, so, you know, you're the Savior, you're, you're God incarnate, I know who you are. I mean, you created this whole universe with a word. Why don't you say the word and turn these stones into bread? Satisfy your hunger. Jesus responded, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the pinnacle of the temple, very high. Uh, I forgot how many feet it was, 75 feet or 100 feet from the top of the temple down to the temple where the uh, foundation was. Of course, it was uh, the time of year when there's a lot of Jews gathered in the temple area for worship services. The devil says, why don't you cast yourself off? Uh, the pinnacle of the temple, because it's written, he'll give his angels charge over you that, so you won't dash your foot against the stone. Wouldn't it be spectacular, Jesus? Tell them about your Messiah. Wouldn't it be spectacular to throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, let the angels come, and just gently float you down? Well, would that, would that be making a scene, wouldn't it? 
Jesus said basically take a hike. But um, <laughs> stones to bread, lust of the flesh, jump from the pinnacle of the temple, let everyone see uh, that you are definitely Messiah. Son of God, pride of life I've tried to appeal to. And the final temptation was to take to show Jesus, take him to a high mountain, show him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time, all their glory. He said, all these belong to me. I can give them to whomever I choose. I'll give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Bypass the cross, Jesus. Uh, you, I know why you've come. You've come to take the world back, all its kingdoms. You've come to reign, but you have to go to the cross first. I got news for you. They're all mine. I, I'll just bypass the cross. I'll give them to you right now if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him shall you serve. And so the devil then split. But I want you to notice that in Matthew 4, three times Satan came at Jesus with three different temptations, just as John mentioned, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And three times the Lord countered by saying, it is written. Guys, the word of God is our weapon, our sword, against Satan's attacks. Of course, you can read on your own 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. The weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they are mighty. For the pulling down of strongholds, he doesn't say what those weapons are. He does say plural, weapons. And you don't have to study the word of God too long to find out that the weapons that God has given us to defeat the enemy is the word of God and prayer. Those are the weapons of our warfare. The word of God and prayer. But these three temptations have been used very successfully by Satan over the centuries to destroy many lives, marriages, and ministries. Let's take the rest of our time this evening to look at these three things. Since this is the core uh, of spiritual warfare, this is how Satan will try to get us, uh, to neutralize us, uh, stunt our growth, shut us down spiritually so that we never have victory, we never bring God glory. He wants us, to, he tries to get us to love the world more than to love God. And so he targets these three areas of our fallen nature. The first we'll look at is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. In the Bible, the word flesh can refer to the physical body. That's true. But most of the time when it's used in the New Testament, it's used to represent our fallen nature, our fallen nature. Our sinful fallen nature is that rebellious nature that we were born with uh, that was passed on to us from our father Adam who received it when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and fell. And at that time, his nature fell, was corrupted. And of course, everyone born since of Adam has inherited a sinful fallen nature at birth. A Christian has both the old nature, which the Bible calls the flesh, and the new nature, the spirit, in his or her life. And what a battle uh, these two natures can wage against each other. Turn to Galatians 5. And again, there are Christians who believe because they have such a battle going on in their lives, maybe they're not even saved. Now, How could I be saved and be battling like this with something inside of me that wants to do evil. How can a child of God think these thoughts or be tempted like this? Well, as Spurgeon said, dead men don't struggle. So the very fact that you're struggling indicates you have a new nature that's warring against your old nature. Because before we got saved, 
We didn't fight. It wasn't any battle against, you know, we just did what the flesh wanted. We didn't know that. We just thought we were doing whatever we wanted. But it was the flesh inside of us, the fallen nature, motivating us to do certain things. But Paul said in Galatians 5, verse 17, you get saved in man. You know, it's kind of like when, uh, uh, was it Rebecca had, uh, uh, had um, oh my goodness, my, I'm having a senior moment, but you, it, Esau and Jacob. Uh, when they were fighting, quite a little ruckus in her womb. And the Lord said, the, the reason you've got such a problem there is because you have two nations inside of you. Well, well that's kind of, we have two nature, natures inside of us fighting, okay? And Paul said, uh, for the flesh, our fallen sinful nature, wars, constantly fights, against the spirit within us. That's our new nature. And the spirit is constantly at war with the flesh, our fallen nature, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Or in other words, obey God completely in all things that he has commanded. We want to. Paul in Romans 7 said, I, I love the, the word of God. I want to obey what God has said. But there's another law in my heart, the law of sin, that wants to do its own thing, right? The fallen nature wants to control. Guys, when the Bible talks about the flesh with regard to our physical bodies... It's important we understand that God has given the human body legitimate drives for the survival of mankind and the perpetuation of the human race. And again, we've talked about these. I'm not going to belabor it. God has given to our physical bodies certain drives that we need to survive and for the uh, perpetuation of the human race. They are in descending order of intensity. The air drive, the water drive, the sleep drive, the food drive, and the sex drive. Now, for some guys, the sex drive comes right after the air drive. But I digress. Look, when these physical drives are kept under the control of the Holy Spirit, they are normal, legitimate, and beneficial. However, when they are allowed to be controlled by man's sinful fallen nature, they become perverted and destructive, what the Bible calls the lusts of the flesh. Thirst becomes drunkenness, hunger becomes gluttony, sleep becomes laziness, and sex becomes immorality. And when these lusts are given into and acted upon, they become the works of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh, when acted upon, become the works of the flesh. Look at Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who, here's the key word, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. John will use that very idea in chapter 3, that born-again children of God will never practice sin habitually without remorse or conviction. We can sin. And some Christians can backslide and sin, you know, on a regular basis for a while. But they will come back. They will come back. One of the young men that was instrumental in the Calvary movement when it first started in the 60s was uh, in early 70s was a man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee you've ever studied the history of Calvary Chapel, uh, Lonnie Frisbee 
was um, like Samson, but not in the strength, but how the Spirit of God came upon Samson and he did incredible, remarkable things. Well, the Spirit of God was upon this young guy so heavily that if he just started talking, a crowd would gather and people would begin to fall to their knees weeping and repenting right there. Uh, this one gentleman that used to go to our church, uh, he said to me, he said, one day we were in line at a grocery store, and I was uh, buying supplies for the house. And I was, uh, you know, at the, at the end, uh, you know, and he, Lonnie was up in front talking to the cashier. Now, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but you, you saw her nodding her head as he was talking, and then you saw her head drop, and then the manager came over, and Lonnie starts talking to him, and then his head dropped. He shuts the cash register off, and they go into the back room where they both accepted Christ. That was the way it was. But Lonnie battled with homosexuality. And while he was walking with the Lord, it wasn't an issue. But the devil is patient, and he will wear you down, and he will slowly wait for little opportunities. And so Lonnie began to fall back into that lifestyle, and the Spirit of God left him. He tried to recapture it. He emerged one day, I don't know how many, a couple, three years later, wearing a clerical collar. And um, people that heard him preach said the Spirit of God was not with him. It was, he was completely gone. He got AIDS. And on his deathbed, some of the pastors that knew him when the Calvary movement was really going strong in the beginning went to see Lonnie. And they talked with him. And Lonnie repented and came back to Jesus before he died. I mean, a child of God can backslide. But they will never renounce their faith. They'll never say, I renounce Jesus Christ. I never really wanted him in the first place. That kind of thing. So Paul said, look, the enemy targets our fallen nature with you know, the lusts of the flesh trying to stimulate those fleshly desires. When we act upon them, they become the works of the flesh. So the question is, how can we resist the devil's temptation with regard to the lust of the flesh? Well, look at verse 16 of Galatians 5. Paul tells us, he said, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? I'll just give you three points quickly. First of all, it means that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that you're saved. That's the foundational principle, that the Holy Spirit lives in you, which only happens when you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. So you have to be saved to walk in the Spirit. Number two, it means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word as to the will of God for your life. So you have to know the Word of God. You have to read it in a, with a heart that says, I will surrender to everything I read, no matter if I like it or not. If God said it's wrong, I'm going to stay away from it. If God says it's good, I'm going to embrace it with all my heart. And then you pray for the grace to do those things. But it starts in the heart with your will. Walking in the Spirit, secondly, means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word as to God's will for your life. And number three, it means to be open and sensitive to the influence and leading of the Holy Spirit, listen, in your daily walk. So you start your day, you give the day to God. 
And then as you go about your business, you're open to the Holy Spirit redirecting you, telling you, don't go over here for lunch, go here. Or don't have lunch at all, go over here. There's somebody I want you to talk to, and you bump into some person, and you have a chance to, to share the gospel, they get saved. This is being open to the Spirit. This is walking in the Spirit. Remember this as we move on. Whatever nature, you got two now, whatever nature you feed will be the dominant force in your life. If you feed the flesh, it will dominate you. And if you feed the Spirit, it will control you. Now here's the thing. It's up to you to decide what nature you're going to feed, what nature you're going to starve. I mean, that's up to us. Second is the lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. Secondly, lust of the eyes. The second area of our fallen nature, the devil tries to target with temptation to defeat us in our walk with the Lord is through the lust of the eyes. This is what the Bible calls covetousness. Covetousness. This is a sin that isn't a big deal today to many Christians. It tends to fly under our moral radar. But it's so serious to God that it made his top ten list of prohibitions. The tenth commandment, the tenth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 17 reads, You shall not covet. The word covet means to strongly desire. Sometimes translated lust after. That's what lust is. It's a strong desire for something. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now listen, this coveting, this lust of the flesh, falls into two main categories, okay? The first one is a lust for possessions. A lust for possessions. You know, Larry Burkett, who used to be, before he went home to the Lord, used to be the premier Christian financial advisor in America. Uh, president of Crown Financial, I think he founded that uh, ministry slash business. But he, he was the premier voice calling Christians to live financially responsible lives. And I remember that I saw a, um, uh, a seminar he did on uh, tape. That was quite good. But, but in that little seminar, he made this statement. He said, most young couples today want to have in three years what it took their parents 30 years to acquire, so they buy a house that's bigger than they need, a car, a lawnmower, washer, dryer, etc., until by uh, the fourth or fifth year of marriage, they are so far in debt and the financial pressure is so great that all they are doing is fighting over money and the bills that they decide it's not worth it anymore. I can't stand my wife and she can't stand me. If I could just get out of this and start all over again, everything would be much better, they tell themselves. And Burkett said, and that's often what happens. In 52% of the cases in America, in the fifth year of marriage, couples get a divorce because of financial pressures. About 92% of all Americans say that they believe what destroyed their marriage was financial pressure. So, Burkett said they get divorced and go out and find two more people exactly like the two people they divorced. They marry them, and within two years you have two more couples doing exactly the same thing that caused the first marriage to dissolve. In fact, 
in 75% of the cases of the second marriage, it will dissolve in less than five years for exactly the same reasons that the first marriage failed, which is 92 or 93% of the time, money. Money. The lust of the eyes. A lust for possessions. This is big in America, right? It's big in America. And it's just amazing. For many people, spending money is a form of therapy. Right? It, it releases endorphins. And uh, it, it has like a, a drug effect. Uh, if they're sad, I'm going to go out and buy a new pair of shoes. If they're really depressed, I'll get a car. Okay, And, you know, that's kind of how it goes. Of course, that makes you feel better for, well, until you get the first payment. Uh, you, know, and then, you know, you feel good for a little while until you have to make the first payment on that car. Uh, not so great. So many people, lust of the eyes manifests itself in a lust for possession. Secondly, second, there's other categories. These are the two main ones. A lust uh, for possessions. Number two, a lust for people. People are not only lusting for possessions in our society, they are also, also lusting after other people. We saw that in uh, the 10th commandment, right? You, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or husband or maidservant, manservant, that kind of thing, okay? Um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust, you don't even have to commit physical adultery in the eyes of God to commit adultery. He said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, I'm not really sure how many Christians today take this seriously, let alone those in the world, of course. The problem is we are living in a sex-crazed society where sex is being used to sell everything from toothpaste to automobiles. And because of that, a lot of people have just become jaded to it. I mean, you can't go anywhere today without being bombarded with sexual images of some kind or another. Uh, even when you go to the mall, uh, you know, in uh, Woodfield Mall, right on the corner of a main walkway, there is uh, the uh, Victoria's Secret store. And, 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 the, and the mannequins in the window. I gotta, when I walk by there, I got to look the other way, you know, and, and because it's so, it's so suggestive. And the little kids are walking around. But, you know, for most people, it's no big deal. They're so used to it. They're jaded to how bad it really is. Advertisers are constantly bombarding us with sexual stimuli that is designed to arouse lust in us, great desire for their product, strong desire. We see this kind of advertising on billboards, you know, magazines, TV, the Internet. And the more people are fed a constant diet of sexual images, the more, you know, sex craze they seem to get. Not all, but many. There's even been a new philosophy that has been coined. Well, it's not that new anymore. But um, all this sexual stimuli uh, has led to a new philosophy called the Playboy philosophy, which legitimizes sexual lust and deviance by claiming sex is nothing more than a biological function to be satisfied, listen, without moral consideration or consequences. Hugh Hefner said, Why get so upset about sex? It's only a biological necessity like eating, drinking, and sleeping. This coming from a man who spent most of his adult life walking around in a bathrobe. 
We should be taking advice from him. The same man who said if Jesus Christ was alive, he'd be a member of the Playboy family. Very deceived man who died a couple years ago. And I can't help but feel sorry for him. I, I, I don't want to see anybody go to hell. But uh, this is where we are. Of course, that attitude is nothing. What, Hafner thought he was being cutting edge? That attitude is nothing new. It, it, it comes right out of Greco-Roman paganism. The attitude in the first century Greco-Roman world was that they looked at sex the same way they looked at eating, drinking, sleeping, and breathing. It was just another biological function to be satisfied again without any moral implications whatsoever. But you see, the inevitable consequence of that philosophy is that you dehumanize women. You dehumanize women. And through pornography, they are turned into mere objects for sexual gratification. This is, the, this is the problem. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to dehumanize people. So a baby in the womb, it's not a baby, it's a lump of tissue. Dehumanize. So you're not feeling guilty when you kill it. All this sexual deviance, dehumanize women. Turn them into objects. And that way we, people don't feel so bad when they, you know, uh, use these women for sexual gratification. When people couple that idea with the mentality that says sex is only a biological function which we should seek to satisfy whenever the urge hits, like we would satisfy the urge for food and water and sleep, well, guys, you come up with then, not you, but society, comes up with an equation that, first of all, equals violent crimes against women. This is, you know, you can't combine those two things, Okay. The, that women are just objects for sexual gratification, coupled with the idea that, that sex is just a biological function that needs to be satisfied whatever the urge hits you. Hungry? Get something to eat, right? You know, there's no moral, you don't feel guilty about that. Uh, you're tired? You get some sleep. Your body needs sex? Go out and give it sex. When you couple those together, it becomes an equation that first of all equals violent crimes against women. In the last few years, guys, in our sex-crazed culture, rape has now surpassed murder as the number one violent crime in America. And secondly, it becomes a formula for the breakdown of marriage and ultimately for the destruction of the family unit which society is built upon. Satan wants to bring down society, he wants to bring down the church, bring down marriage. He's no fool. He knows if you target marriage and you do so by all this lust, you know, lusting after things that you can't afford and that causes your marriage to break and to, you know, be destroyed. Or lusting after people, again, target marriage with these things. Marriages then are destroyed. Family units are destroyed. The church, society are eventually destroyed. Look around. Look around. This is exactly what we're seeing in our society. I'll tell you what, sexual desire being fueled by pornography on the Internet and uh, other things like Internet romance where people are hooking up online, a lot of times through different uh, chat rooms and uh, various other means. Uh, this is destroying many marriages. It has destroyed many and many families. And guys, this doesn't even begin to take into account the physical consequences of all this sexual promiscuity 
is in the spread of STDs. AIDS, of course, is one of those. But uh, over the last couple of months, I, I was reading about how that um, there are uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of gonorrhea now. Antibiotics won't kill. So we are a society that's reaping the consequences of all this sexual promiscuity. Of course, the one you know so well is abortion. Is it just me? Or does it seem bizarre but totally demonic that people are fighting so hard to kill babies? That when legislation is passed, like in New York that, or Illinois, that broadens a woman's uh, uh, you know, access to abortion, the lawmakers are cheering as if they've done a great thing. Of course, back in pagan times, there was the god Molech. Israel fell into this worship. And a lot of these gods, uh, you know, Ashtoreth and uh, Baal, they were nature gods and goddesses that were worshipped through sexual orgies. The idea was you worship the god or goddess, and then, of course, they would smile upon you with an abundant harvest or, you know, agrarian culture, right? Now, of course, that appealed to the flesh. To have an orgy, sexual orgy, well, that appealed to the flesh. Of course, I'm doing it for religious reasons, so that we can have a, a, a lot of food to eat. But, of course... The consequence of all this promiscuity, sexual speaking, was unwanted pregnancies. So what do these people do with these unwanted... They wanted the, the pleasure, but they didn't want the responsibility of having a child. And so they worshipped the god Molech, which was a deity always made with, in bronze or brass, with its arms extended, and it would sit in a fire pit... And they would light the fire pit until the, uh, the, the god Molech was glowing red hot. And of course, they went, it was a whole thing. They would, they would go into this, uh, where they were beating drums and they were chanting and they would work themselves up into an altered state of consciousness as the drum beats got louder and louder and people began screaming at the top of their lungs and at the height of all this ecstatic worship, they would place their little babies into the red-hot arms of Molech and, of course, all the screams of the people were drowning out the screams of these little children. That's how they got rid of these unwanted kids. There's a lot of people that worship the god Molech today. And that is the god of pleasure. Molech was the god of pleasure. And you didn't want to sacrifice your pleasure by having to raise unwanted kids. So you sacrificed that child to the god Molech, the very thing that many parents are uh, doing today who want the, to sleep around but don't want to raise these babies. And so they literally, uh, through a saline injection, have them burned inside the womb to the god Molech, although they wouldn't maybe, I'm sure they don't realize what they're doing, the god of pleasure, I'm not ready. Well, you were ready to have sex. So now you're going to kill your child because you're not ready to be responsible? This is the society we're living in. It's sick, it's twisted. One more quickly, the pride of life. Pride of life. 
The Greek word for pride was used to describe a braggart who was trying to impress people with his importance. People have always tried to outdo others in their spending and in their possessing of material things. And the boastful pride of life motivates much of what these people do and buy. One author said, and I quote, Why is it that so many folks buy houses, cars, appliances, or wardrobes that they really cannot afford? Why do they succumb to the travel now, pay later advertising and get themselves into hopeless debt, taking vacations far beyond their means? Largely because they want to impress other people. Because of their pride of life, quote-unquote, they may want folks to notice how affluent or successful they are, end quote. Of course, many people would deny their spending as being motivated by a desire to impress others. That's foolish. How could you even think that? But then why do they buy designer clothes or status symbol cars, right? <laughs> Look, I shop at Walmart for my clothes. And I know you're, some of you are thinking, and it looks like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if I could spend 20 bucks on a nice shirt, why would I want to spend five times that, right? A couple of year, Christmases ago, uh, a couple in the church very kindly gave me a gift of a $100 gift card to one of these high-end kind of designer. I'm not going to mention the name because I'm not really upset with them, but you, you know the name, 100 bucks. Well, I figure, okay, I get a shirt maybe or some, two shirts. You know, maybe you have two shirts and a pair of pants. hundred bucks. That's a lot of money, right? And maybe get a little change back. So I went in there. I was shocked at the prices in this designer store. I thought, I mean, their stuff was nice. But, you know, the cheapest thing I found was a $140 shirt. Who spends $140 on a shirt that's worth maybe $30? And if it's on sale at Walmart, maybe $15. I don't know. But why would I want to do that? But I had the $100 gift card. So I wound up spending $40 of my own money on a shirt I didn't really want. But people do that. I love it when they have the name of the designer emblazoned, you know? What's that one guy that used to put the, his name down the whole leg? Uh, some designer? Was it? Okay, Hellfigure, okay. Uh, you know, it was, it's, that was one, you know. It's like, wow. But I don't do it to show off. I just like their clothes. You know? or, or, or this... People that buy status symbol cars. Look, uh, Chevy makes some pretty nice cars. Why, why do you have to have a Beamer or a, a Mercedes? A nice Chevy will get where you want to go, and it's a nice car. Okay? But people buy it for the status. They buy it for the status. And yet they, 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 they would vehemently deny. They buy these things to, to show off or uh, to, uh, you know, to boast uh, of what they own. I don't do it for that. I, it's not motivated by desire to impress people. Well, I think you're wrong. Yeah, the pride of life has caused many to worship their bodies. Hey, look, God wants us to take care of our bodies. He doesn't want us to worship our bodies, you know. Uh, there's a whole
ministry, you know very well what that's all about. People living to simply worship their bodies. Um, for others, the pride of life, especially among men, but women are not immune, uh, motivates many of them to succeed in business. And so they work 18 hours a day uh, trying to be successful uh, in their business or corporation. Many men have sacrificed their marriages and families on the altar of success. Interesting, I had a, a, a note to quote Lee Iacocca, who just died yesterday, or yeah, yesterday, July 2nd. Lee Iacocca was a very successful man and brought Chrysler back to the brink of extinction, okay? But he made the statement that no man ever wished on his deathbed that he would have spent more time in the office. They always wish that they had spent more time with their families or their spouses. It's too bad a lot of guys don't realize that till they are on the deathbed. What, what drives them? The pride of life. The pride of life. John said, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Guys, the more you let these three things draw you closer to the world, the more they will draw you away from God. God knows it. The devil knows it. And this is warfare. This is warfare. It happened in Israel. God said before he even let him into the promised land, I'm going to warn you, he said, that when you go into this good land I'm giving you, and you live in the houses you didn't build, and you drink from the wells you didn't dig, and you eat from the vineyards you didn't plant, don't forget me. Prosperity breeds an independent attitude. We don't have to pray, God, give me today my daily bread. That's a problem. It breeds independence. Independence breeds apathy. Apathy breeds idolatry, apostasy, until finally a person is so far from God they can't even figure out what happened, if they even wonder at all. Again, the more you let these things draw you closer to the world, the more they will draw you away from God. Not me. Not me. I can have both. I can have God and success. Well, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Satan wants to be your master. He is your enemy, but he wants to be your master. And if he can draw you away from God, he can destroy your walk, your witness, your family, your faith, and whatever else God is blessing you with in your life, he will rob you of everything that is important. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Turn to Matthew 6 as we wrap it up. So much of this was geared toward marriage, but it applies to anything. But when we talk about deciding what we're going to love more, God or the world, Jesus summed it up when he said in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, he said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the kicker. Here's the verse. Whatever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. What is spiritual warfare a battle for? Your heart. Your heart. It's a battle for your heart. 
And if Satan can get you to love the world more than God, he can get you to lay up treasures on the earth, all the while taking you away from God and everything that's important, your family, your kids, your ministry. One author made this observation from history. He said, and I quote, On May 6th, 1626, in exchange for some brass buttons and a scarlet cloth worth about $24, Manhattan Island was purchased from the Manhattan Indian tribe by Peter Minuet, a Dutch governor of the New Netherlands province who named the island New Amsterdam. It was later taken over by the British and renamed New York City. If the Manhattan tribe had only known how valuable that piece of property would someday be, they no doubt would have kept it, but in their ignorance they exchanged a priceless possession for some cheap baubles. Some of you are doing the same thing with the priceless possession God has given you, your marriage and family. The time is short. Stop fighting each other, husbands and wives, and start praying together. Men start being the husbands and fathers God has called you to be, end quote. Don't let the devil rip you off. And so one more time I want to read to you 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 out of the Amplified, and we'll close. Here's what it says. Do not love or cherish the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, craving for sensual gratification, and the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind, and the pride of life, assurance in one's own resources or instability of earthly things, these do not come from the Father, but are from the world itself. And the world passes away and disappears, and with it the forbidden cravings, the passionate desires, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God and carries out his purposes in this, in this life abides or remains forever. So there you have it. The two worlds, okay? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the devil, competing for control of your heart. Who are you going to love more? God or the world? And that's the thing. So God, give us grace to make the right decision. And it's a decision we have to make every day. So God willing, next time we'll come together and move on. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truth. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you gave your only begotten son that through our Savior's death and resurrection, we are now the children of God. The devil wants, of course, to get us back under his control by loving the world more than we love you. Give us grace, Lord, not to fall into that trap, to keep our eyes on things above, not on things of the earth, that we never lust uh, that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life uh, is never able to take us down. But we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So Lord, we ask you to continue to, to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.